0: Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam François, and to all our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture, What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by Professor Elizabeth McRae, authors of Mothers of Massive Resistance, White Women and the Politics of White Supremacy, which explores among other things, how motherhood has been wielded in the service of American white supremacy. Published in 2018, the book was awarded the Frederick Jackson Turner Award given by the Organization of American Historians, the Frank and Harriet Owsley Award given by the Southern Historical Association, and the Society for Professors of Education Outstanding Book Award. Professor McRae's scholarly interest center on race, politics, and education in post-war America. She's a Creighton Sorsuman, Professor of History at Western Carolina University where she also co-directs the Appalachian Oral History Project Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, various radio shows and podcasts. She's also worked with the National Council on School Diversity and her current project examines the role of school choice in American public education. Welcome, Professor McRae. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for um, having me.
0: Thank you. So your book is titled Mothers of Massive Resistance, White Women and the Politics of White Supremacy. For those who haven't yet had a chance to read it, can you tell us a little bit about what the book's about?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the book um, begins in 1920 um, after the success of the women's suffrage movement in the United States. And it examines um what were both white um, suffragists and anti suffragist claims that um, women in politics would um, support the um, regime of racial segregation? And so I took their words and began to look for if they did that and how they did it. Um, so that was sort of one trajectory. And the other sort of question um, that frames the book is. Um, pretty simple, but I was curious about why the quest for racial equality in the United States, um, given the grassroots efforts and the long civil rights movement, had not sort of come to a fruition of um, equality. And as um, those two questions collided, because what I found and what I examined in the book is how white women play central roles in sustaining and shaping and remaking racial segregation and white supremacist politics throughout the 20th century. And, and can you tell us, uh, what do you mean by the
0: term white supremacy in this particular context? Is, is America today
1: a white supremacist culture? Um, there certainly is a white supremacist i mean i think you can't look at january 6th and not see sort of overwhelming evidence of um, the power of white supremacist ideologies and white nationalist ideologies functioning on the political landscape Um, and so in my project which goes mostly from or my book from 1920 into the early 1970s um, racial segregation is the system that upholds white supremacist politics, right? Like the larger political project of amassing economic, social, and cultural power through the ideology of white supremacy is shaped on the ground by various iterations of legal and customary racial segregation. And and so would you say that Until your book,
0: in many ways, women, white women, had been written out of the history of white supremacist culture, or that they'd been kind of placed in a sort of marginal position. What, what, how would you define it? So I
1: think um, historically, when in the United States we've talked about white supremacist politics, and particularly in the era of the long civil rights movement, there's been a lot of focus on elected officials who were um, white men. So the George Wallace's um, of the world, the Lester Maddox's from Georgia, um, the Ross Barnett who said he was going to prevent the integration of the University of Mississippi as governor of Mississippi. I think those kind of um, figures have dominated the discussion of sort of traditional electoral politics. And then I think there's also a fascination, and it's important, but there's um, been a focus on racist violence. So if you think about the murder of um, Emmett Till in 1955, um, the murder of civil rights activists in Philadelphia, Mississippi, um, the beating of the Freedom Riders, the black and white students who tried to Um, challenge racial segregation on interstate bus lines. And so I think those two sort of trajectories um, shaped much of um, what we understood about white supremacist politics. And I think there's that tendency even um, today, like the violence on January 6th, which is Mm. really important, right? focus this conversation um, again and while that is a very important story and needs to be examined I think there's um, a more systemic way that white supremacist politics and racial um, inequity is enacted in the United States and um, from sort of the ground level up and institutionally and that's what I was interested in and that's where I found women doing the work and I think for People that do women's history, that's not surprising, right, that so often men are the spokespeople and the real work being done, whether it's a church or a school, right, has historically been done by women on the ground. And, And that's true for racial segregation and white supremacist politics as well.
0: Mm. So you said in an article for the New York Times um, that the narrative of white supremacist history in the US is not immune to the same sexist forces that have shaped so many of our national historical narratives. It has left women out. And that has consequences for how we think about these politics today. And I really want to push you on um, exactly how that should uh, alert us to certain aspects of understanding how white supremacy operates in the u.s today because as you pointed out there's a lot of focus on um, the institutional voices that you know the trumps on the violence um, of particular you know particular men as you said January 6 I think I can only think of male figures actually when I re- rec- recall um the that, that the the mass of people I'm seeing mainly men uh, but but actually women have pay, played a critical role role in this movement of, of white supremacy. So so what consequences do you think this has had for how we think about politics today, this erasure of the role of white women in
1: the white supremacist movement? So I think it becomes much more difficult, but also a really important reckoning um, to recognize that um, seemingly your neighbors, right? And the parent teacher association leaders and teachers and um, members of civic organizations are participating in this project. And I think um, it's much easier, right? To sort of look at white supremacist politics and pull out the figure Uh, and even though there were a number of women who've been arrested for the January 6th riot, um, and of course, Ashley Babbitt, who um, was killed in the um, riot. But I think it's much easier to pull out this sort of icon of a kind of uneducated or rabid white male nationalist toting a gun, (laughs) right? And that's easier to condemn, it's easier to recognize, and it's easier to say that's just not like us, right? They're Mm. different. And I think, but the power um, and the entrenched nature of um, racial inequity in this country is not only perpetuated um, by sort of that version, Of a white supremacist, right? That progressives, liberals, conservatives have all either wittingly or unwittingly, and there's some of both, right? Participated in this project. And I think that if we're going to, if the nation wanted to move to a more equitable society, right, that's not built on um, white supremacist political ideology that we have to recognize the places um, and the act and the full sort of spectrum of the actors that have participated in this
0: mm. and so uh, let's talk about some concrete ways or concrete differences between how men and women have shored up support for white white supremacy um, historically but perhaps you know if you can bringing us up to, uh, the current day?
1: Um, can I start historically? <laughs> oh, please please to do, because
0: pre- presumably there's, there's continuities, and I think those continuities are really important to bring out, so yes, absolutely, please do.
1: So I think um, maybe we'll take, uh, there's so many examples, and so you'll probably have to cut me off, but if we took um, sort of American historical narratives, right, the narrative of American history. In the 1920s, white segregationist women, um, mainly in the American South, orchestrated a kind of um, an influence statewide textbook selection committees um, with these lists of what, how American history should be taught, which erased racist conflict and violence, erased um, the work of um, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was the founder of the first KKK, um, got rid of Harriet Tubman, right, um, sort of whitened and um, the narrative of American history, and also erased um, significant race and class conflicts. Um, because the South was the first place to move to statewide textbook selection, these women influenced um, those textbook selection committees to call the Civil War, for example, the war between the states, to say that slavery was a school, um, right? Some of these tropes that we hear um, and we saw it um, reiterated, frankly, in the 1776 report that came out um, on MLK's birthday this year from the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happened is in the sort of capitalist calculus of publishing houses, which weren't um, in the South for the most part, they recognized, right, they would make greater profits if they wrote textbooks, right, that, the, that would get statewide um, selection. And so the nation's textbooks, right, begin to reflect this particular project of racial segregationist white women, right, who had believed that in order to sustain the Jim Crow order, the legal and customary system of white over black in um, the 20th century South, that um, white students needed to be taught, right? An investment in sort of racial segregation. But but that story ripples out across the nation and um, it's pretty hard to change textbook narratives, right? So
0: it becomes like a constituent part of the American educational narrative about who you are as a nation, would that be fair?
1: Right, right. So Mm. one example, in 1938, um, the Mississippi Educational Association did a survey, and what they found is if you read every textbook in every subject, first through 12th grade, that you would never meet a single Black American by name. Wow. Yeah. Right? And... Mississippi wasn't um, reading different textbooks than folks in California.
0: Also a very important point, um, I would imagine, given you know the internal politics of the US in which it often sounds like racism is something that's cordoned off as a, <laughs> a Southern problem. And as, as, a, as, a, as a Southern scholar, I'm sure you might have something to say about that as well.
1: Well, I think um, that's also done um, pretty important work for um, the sort of reign of racial inequity in the United States is to imagine that that sort of ethos and that sort of political commitment is limited to a region, Mm. Um, but it's not. So some of the women, and while my book focuses a lot on Southern white women, They had national networks, so their campaign against um, the UN's UNESCO branch, UNESCO, that offered multicultural education in the aftermath of World War II was um, opposed not only by segregationist women in the South, but by um, suburban white women in Pasadena and Los Angeles. Um, Mm. And... and And
0: Yeah, sorry, that's a point I really want to pull you up on because I feel that um, we often hear a uh, a sort of a a liberal disconnect with, you know, uh, racism in America today. So somehow almost like a level of surprise, you know, it's like this, how could this be happening? This isn't us. But from what I'm hearing from you, that's actually a very dangerous psychological uh, disengagement from the historical facts
1: right yeah I think it's a dangerous intellectual position right um I'll give you just one example so when the book came when the book came out the angriest responses I got were from white women in Boston
0: yeah
1: right were you expecting that um I guess I should
0: have. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, but tell us what 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 were their I, what were their main grievances um that that you were somehow tarring them with the same brush that southern women have usually been tarred with.
1: Right. Right. And that um and that they couldn't possibly be right that their um that the opposition against bussing which is far more widespread and, and nationwide than the opposition, say, to the Brown decision, right? That the opposition to- um, Can you explain
0: those things just for audiences that are not familiar oh, sure. with, yeah?
1: So the Brown decision was not the 1954 Supreme Court decision that said separate but equal institutions in public education were unconstitutional, right? And busing? And, and then um, busing after um you know, nearly 20 years or 15 years of trying to integrate um, public schools in some um, particularly urban areas, right, busing in places like Charlotte, North Carolina, became the way to integrate schools and overcome what was also a deep history of residential segregation, right, so that neighborhoods were segregated, um, and therefore, if you were You had to sort of move away from a neighborhood school model, which is also kind of mythical. But anyway, uh, move away from a neighborhood school model. And the way that you could integrate schools was to bus populations right into a more integrated educational setting. And so um, Swan versus Mecklenburg was the Supreme Court case um, in the 1970s out of Charlotte that Um, said that busing was an appropriate response to desegregate schools. And what that meant is in urban areas, in particular across the nation, right, busing became the um, mechanism to integrate um, schools that had been largely segregated, not by the same kind of laws that were in the American South in the middle of the century, but by residential segregation patterns and redlining. Mm.
0: And and so these women were objecting to, to, to what exactly within that narrative?
1: I think in the same ways that The um, women in Boston and Milwaukee and different places objected to busing in the 70s, they argued that that was um, an infringement on their right as mothers right, to walk their children to school, to have their children go to schools that they knew. Right. And, and that that was um, a burden that was enacted on working class communities more than suburban communities that moved out of city centers and out of municipal areas. Um, and certainly some of the um, arguments about how um, racial integration via busing is enacted more in working class neighborhoods than middle class neighborhoods has rings true um, in, in some ways. But I think the idea that their um, opposition to busing and that the white women's opposition to busing in in Boston was akin to white women's opposition to Ruby Bridges integrating the elementary school in New Orleans or white women screaming on the sidewalks at the Little Rock Nine integrating Central High School in Arkansas. And I think that shows this sort of investment, right, that that American-style racism is limited, right, It to a particular region. Um, and, and historically, that's just, I mean, there's plenty of scholarship showing that that's not true. That doesn't mean the South's like everywhere else. Of course. I mean, there's, right, there's something to say for a region that for years had a legal system, right, that articulated um, in its legal code racial segregation in a ways that other um, areas across the nation built it into bureaucratic policies and real estate practices and loan policies, right?
0: Mm.
1: So it was in many
0: ways, different approaches, but a similar philosophy underpinning them, would you say?
1: I think um, in 2005, I did a. Um, I took students on a trip, a civil sort of a civil rights history trip through the South, and we met um, with a gentleman, Hollis Watkins, who was the first Black Mississippian member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the 1960s, and um, and he's working on. Um, with the organization, he started an organization called Southern Echo, and what Hollis Watkins said is the South is everything South of um, the Arctic Circle, (laughs) right, Right. Uh, what what he saw, right, in terms of racial inequality, not only in the United States and the world, was that we had to think about this in, in in a much larger sense
0: and that's that's interesting because i think there is um you know quite a lot of scholarship that talks about how um you know in in the society in society we create mythologies about who we are as as nations and and part of those mythologies when it comes to racism require the cordoning off of racism as the problem out there um and so when it's out there it's not us it, it's something that can be looked at at a distance um, and be pointed to and not require a sort of level of introspection um, that, that it would if it was integrated as our own. Um, I'm just wondering, hearing you talk about that, do you, um, do you think that the um, small ways in which um, the maintenance of racial supremacy has occurred historically, and, it, and as you said, it could be things like op- opposing busing because you say you know you claim to want to walk your child to school, and that's an infringement of your you know quality time with your child on the route to school. But maybe there's something a bit more insidious um, <laughs> you know underlying that opposition, or more to the point, that you walking to your school your child to school was considered more important to you than you know racial equality. Um, which I I think is probably more more to the point here. Um, How, how do you recognise contemporary ways in which white women are contributing to the maintenance of white supremacy in these sort of almost seemingly anodyne ways today? Um, And and I say this, because you've argued that confronting the role of white women in maintaining white supremacy in in your article in the New York Times should happen with seriousness rather than surprise. Um, And and it made me made me think that, yes, in in fact, can can we recognize some of these patterns in in contemporary America? Is it or is it something that can be uh, looked at as as history?
1: Oh, no, I think we can. um, I'm not. There's a podcast um, that came out of New York called Nice White Parents about how um, it examined a school in New York um, that um, white parents moved in and began to push for sort of educational, different educational programs and for fundraising and um, well-intentioned, but ignored the voices and experiences of the families who'd been attending that school, right? So uh, organized a fundraiser, for example, at an embassy, <laughs> right, that was uptown and involved travel and, and um, transportation, and um, that really didn't reflect um, wasn't embedded in the community, right? That mm-hmm. the school um, that the school reflected, and also ignored the voices of school leaders, right? Who'd been pushing for different kinds of educational reforms and taking care of their children. That the sort of um, white parents that came in didn't hear and didn't recognize. Um, how their solutions, right, um, were not taking into account the experiences and the long history of when this had been done, Tom, um, you know, before um, about um, sort of school improvement. And so I think that, uh, and these were well-meaning, right? Um, of folks, course. But yeah. that um, not recognizing, right, both the um, social, cultural, and economic power that, um, they brought to the table, um, they didn't listen, right, to the needs of the larger school community. It's interesting
0: because that example, um, you know, speaks to me to the ignorance that many of us who are racialized as white have about the meaning and power of whiteness, in our interactions. Um, And and obviously, that's one of the things a podcast is is dedicated to. So I guess my first, you know, point on this has to be to ask you how you would define whiteness.
1: Right. So I think whiteness is a construct, a powerful construct, right, that has, um, that reflects the um, racial and racist landscape that, in my like from my experience and research that has defined the United States, right? And that shapes the United States. And so whiteness, I think, calls on um, or ask, right? That folks interrogate the position, right? That they're in and how definitions of whiteness which change and frankly um, wield um, more power for some than others, right that how those definitions and construct of whiteness, right have shaped the history, have shaped opportunity, have um, affected um, different economic choices. Um, mm. That whiteness as a as a construct, right has, um, I think has the power to make more visible how race and racism right has shaped the world that we live in.
0: Mm, and that's very much actually how I um, think of it. I think of, of sort of whiteness as the uh, almost like the framework from which racism flows. Um, and you know, the extent to which we ignore whiteness and focus on uh, racism, uh, it, racism <laughs> recognizing racism is vital to understanding whiteness. But but only focusing on on racism, it seems to me, um, sort of ignores the, the root of the problem. Um, and, and, and a lot of the time, and I bring it back to the example you just gave of the school, it's interesting to me how um, the uh, whiteness can often operate as um, a, a sense that you don't have to connect with other people's realities. In this case, you can organize an event which contains within it forms of uh, social and racial elitism that... Um, you haven't had to consider the impact of on the communities which you live side by side with and who you might even think of as friends and colleagues. Would you, um, is that something you would recognize
1: you mean in my personal life I hope I would recognize it (laughs) well I don't I wasn't going there straight away we might get to that but
0: no I meant I meant in that particular example because I think a lot of the time people struggle to uh, you know whiteness is a concept and it's it's a power structure and if you're trained in the social sciences these are things we we all day to day but for people in their everyday lives you know sometimes this can be quite a difficult thing to get your head around but that example you gave of the school, I suppose, is one that maybe other people could relate to, you know, where you organize an event, what kind of event you organize, um, uh, you know, can all uh, contain with them um, a reflection of whiteness, which is inherently exclusionary, right?
1: Right, right. I think, um, and this is maybe off the point, but the very way that um, many Americans, and I think this, um, define good schools, right, um, focuses on achievement at the sort of top levels, right, and I think when we look at public schools in the United States, and we, um, and I think the pandemic has actually um, brought this into really stark relief, we are also talking about institutions that are necessary to provide food for poor families and, and children, mm. right? Mm. And are necessary as an entree to the healthcare system. And, and so that imagining that education, that public schools are for this academic education and that's the measure, I think um, obfuscates what other larger roles that public schools play in communities, right, and and Mm. perform for their students. And so I think the material realities of um, the folks that attend a public school sometimes, right, um, produce a kind of class elitism or a class blindness, if you will, to sort of what the larger material realities um, are and what that means that a school's um, required to do. Right? Yeah, that makes it, sense. Yeah. Is it that we need four AP calculus classes or do we need to make sure that everybody learns algebra, <laughs> right? And that we bring, you know, like where is a in, in the resource game that we focus our resources? And so, so often I think when we talk about good schools, um, it reflects a class and racial uh, elitism, right? Or blindness really, right? Like shaped by personal experiences that um, make us either unwilling or unable or unaware that we need to examine sort of the larger landscape.
0: Mm. Um, in the book, you refer to the concept of white supremacist maternalism um, in reference to the grassroots work of white women in maintaining racial segregation. Can you unpack that term for us a little bit? Because I think it's a really interesting one.
1: Yeah, so when I started the project, I was sort of obsessed with this notion of maternal politics, right? And we see this um really on a, on a global scale, right? Particularly after in the 20th century of women wielding political power and social power through the sort of prism of motherhood, right? We need child labor laws because that makes me a good mother. We need, you know, to limit women's nighttime working hours because of this sort of motherhood. And so I think that, um, a lot of the early scholarship on maternal politics um, framed it in kind of a, a, a more progressive, as a more progressive political impulse. Mm. And, and so by talking about white supremacy, supremacist maternalism or motherhood, right, I tried to sort of um, wrench apart that marriage between kind of progressivism and maternalism, and that you can have a very conservative kind of maternal politics that is, um, like, understood in a framework of kind of acquisition, right, that what is best for my child might mean that your child doesn't receive these things (laughs) Mm. right like uh, it's not a collective like oh because i'm a mother right i have this biological and essentialist kind of maternal instinct that is collective right Mm. and i think that that's just not so when i that was one of the attempts to sort of think about that term right that motherhood is not um like a morally neutral or, or essentially a morally good um, construct, right, that um, there's different ways motherhood and maternalism are wielded in the political and cultural sphere.
0: Yeah, and, and I thought that was really interesting, um, kind of reading through your book, the ways in which um, white motherhood actually has been constructed and built up through the institutions in many ways um, through a relationship to white supremacy um, and as I was reading it I was thinking to myself um, does that mean that the dominant conception of motherhood in the in the states which is still um, arguably uh, a white womanhood um, is the concept of white motherhood harmful to
1: people of color in America? Well, I think it's switch cons, right? I mean, there are multiple um, constructs of sort of motherhood. And I think we see this even in sort of popular literature. Like I was reading the work of um, Danny McLean, um, who writes about kind of black motherhood and and what that means. But I think if you imagine that, if we take the Jim Crow era, so if if we take white women who believed and were taught that white motherhood meant keeping their daughters away from someone else's black sons, I think it's pretty easy to see how that can be harmful, right, because when those lines are crossed, what's your response, right? And in the Jim Crow South, um, where interracial sex and, and merit, where interracial marriage was outlawed, um, right? In, in many parts of the United States until the Loving case in the late 1960s, I think we see like how that construction of white motherhood and white womanhood can be, and was, and remains damaging, right? Mm. For mothers of color and for, and, and for children.
0: In the book, you, you highlight the ways in which white women were central to the daily work needed to sustain racial segregation, and in fact, to shape resistance to racial equality, uh, which is very different to the idea to the idea that they were simply, you know, victims of the patriarchy, you know, following a male order. How different does the picture look today, in 2021, when it comes to white women's role in resisting racial equality?
1: I mean, I don't, I don't wanna sound Pollyanna-ish, but I think one of the outco- or one of the trends as a result of our um, political landscape and not just the past four years, but certainly in the 21st century has been um, an inability to sort of ignore the role that white supremacist politics is playing right like um, Mm. this notion of color blindness right that circulated um and was powerful in the rise of the new right in the 1970s and 80s right it it, um and sort of hid the racist underpinnings of that yeah that the discourse changed but the policies did not Mm. Um, I think I think it would be pretty hard to find, it. well, I shouldn't, I won't quote numbers because I'm not a social scientist, but I think sure. that um, my sense is it's pretty hard for people to ignore the sort of power uh, that white supremacist ideology is having on the national landscape today. That's, that's interesting, because I do,
0: uh, you know, looking at America from from Europe, from Britain, there was, I think, a narrative of about, you know, Trump having come into power and sort of invigorated the white supremacists and that, you know, now that the Biden administration are in power, that we will kind of see a rollback of white supremacy and I wonder to what extent you feel that that is an accurate narrative because I think others might say, well, actually Trump allowed the vocalization of a trend or of a movement that had been suppressed um, by a mythology that America maintains about itself. Um, And uh, are we returning to that mythology or, or how do you assess it?
1: Oh, I don't, uh, so I agree with your latter uh, (laughs) uh, comment that I think, um, well, first, let me say, I'm sort of less interested and um, I'm very wary of commentary that sees the trickle down from the top. I'm like, Mm. my research, I'm really interested in sort of how things bubble up, right? Mm. And are shaped by people on the ground. So, um, you know, Trump might be seductive to talk about and, you know, the sort of rawness and brutality uh, of the language. But I think that's, for me, not the real story. That the real story is how this animates um, folks' political and cultural actions on the ground.
0: And you're seeing that shift on the ground, presumably?
1: I don't know that I'm seeing that shift on the pr- ground, but I hope, I don't think people that are paying attention can say they're surprised anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? I, I yeah. just, I don't know how you do that. And. I worked on this book for a long time, and I originally thought it might come out during the um, Obama administration, right, With, and, mm. and, and early on in the Obama administration where we heard, you know, you heard the phrase post-racial. Right. And I thought, yes. wow, like, how's this work going to play in a society that sort of dedicated itself, or some portions of the society have committed themselves to this wishful vision of a post racial society? Or I don't know if that's wishful or not, but they wished for it. Right. It seemed yeah. like. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, there's, there, I don't think there's any sense that that is the place where we are.
0: Today. Mm. Yeah, and and I guess that makes makes me want to uh, question you a little bit about your own personal interest in this topic, um, where does that stem from? And how do you yourself account for your subjectivity uh, you know, as, as a white woman, as a southerner um, in this particular conversation around white supremacy? Because um, I guess a lot of um, academics, particularly academics uh, who are black and brown have written about the dangers of white people examining um, the history of whiteness Um, and so it's something I'm always sort of trying to be attentive to um, myself yeah and so I'm just wondering if you know how did you go about avoiding those pitfalls well and also why you know I hope I avoided (laughs)
1: them yeah I hope I avoided them I think um, and you know certainly that's been a debate in academic circles that the advent of whiteness studies right once again returns Um, white people to the center of academic inquiry, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's one. And and I was not um, interested in that. I was really interested in how local people, right, affect and shape the policies and politics of the nation, right? And and I think back to sort of my earlier um, comment, I just believe that for a system of racial inequality and racism to sustain itself after decades and decades, right, of um, black and brown activism, right, against it, that there had to be more than George Wallace, right, and there Mm -hmm. had to be more than the Klan, for example, right, that it had to be baked in um, to kind of everyday life, and so my attempt was not to sort of center whiteness at the, um, as the sort of bulk of the story, but to expose the sort of dailiness and the institutions and the way that racial segregation and white supremacist politics were remade and reshaped so that those who are trying to dismantle it, right, could know where to do the work.
0: Mm. Well, um, which brings me nicely to the question around those mythologies, maybe, that white women have perpetuated in order to try and maintain Racial segregation, um, whether that's consciously or in some cases presumably unconsciously?
1: Right. I think, and um, I found Ibram X. Kendi's um, formulation of producers and consumers Mm. of white supremacist politics really helpful. Right. Like um, that, the sort of main actors in my work are producers of white supremacist politics, and their goal was for people to consume it, right, so that it became almost seemingly natural, right, Um, that the stories they told became, sort of, would permeate society, uh, Mm. right, and that states' rights, particularly in the late 60s and 1970s and today, could be wrenched apart from its sort of white supremacist past, right? Yes. And, and, and so I think that, um, I've probably lost my, so that's like, um, that was sort of my interest. I will say this, that...
0: Um, In, so yes, yeah, so, sorry, go on. Yeah, so the, the mythologies was the question, the, the mythologies of white women that we, that, that are used to perpetuate uh, and maintain racial segregation but please finish your point first sorry
1: well I was thinking about the subjectivity like I could do the work and people would talk to me as a white woman right um in ways that I think um it would have been harder for a scholar of color to get some of those stories Mm -hmm. not the archival stories right but the kind of conversational stories
0: yeah, which is which is in itself a manifestation of whiteness, which is the access that right. when when you're racialized as white, you are aware, I am aware that our ability to converse with uh, people who are also racialized as white, there is a sense that some people have of safety in that yes. space. Yes. Um, and this therefore of an expression of views and perspectives that are assumed to be uh, understood By by the interlocutor, which um, I think as somebody who's kind of invested in in trying to, you know, challenge whiteness is quite disconcerting. I don't know how you experience it, but, um, uh, you know, for myself, I can give a very concrete example would be. Uh, you know I'm, I'm racialized as white but i'm but i'm muslim i will find myself on uh sadly not an unfre- infrequent uh occasion speaking to somebody who will um assume that i will share their views on m- muslims um, usually negative views uh, right. or on, on immigration and um uh, and be sli- slightly dumbfounded by the assumption right that right, that right. i will by virtue of my racial identity somehow be um in agreement uh or as I experience it complicit. <laughs>
1: right, um, right, right.
0: Yeah. Um is so that is that something you recognize in your research?
1: Oh, for um yes. Like I was um interviewing um relatives of one of the women that I wrote about. And I think I was seven months pregnant, so I probably didn't seem particular, you know, and I have a southern accent, and I was white, and <laughs> like, I seemed, I think, probably particularly non-threatening um, mm-hmm. at that moment, and um, they said, well, we're thinking about publishing her columns, but we're going to go through and take out the things that would make it um, problematic for us to live here and I, mm. I, and I said well if they're on microfilm <laughs> like you know, the news like the news but this notion that they that I think they right that I understood what it meant right about what their relative had written that would make it problematic for them to live um, in a world that black and white people um, Ostensibly, right, we're on an equal playing ground, different than they were when she was writing, right, different mm. than the sort of reign of racial segregation, and there were all sorts of uh, implicit assumptions right. um, in that conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I and I guess that's that's part of the the sort of day-to-day work to challenging whiteness is finding oneself in these situations and figuring out how to navigate the resistance to the assumption of complicity without triggering, I guess, what, you know, Robin DiAngelo refers to as white fragility. I know many people have written about this in different ways, but um, the sort of anger that you are dissenting from um, a narrative which is assumed to be shared... I don't know. Is that something that you?
1: I mean, I think that's part of the white, like the mythology of white women, right? That there's this like broad agreement, like racialized agreement, right? That some people believe because you are a white woman and that you share in the political prescriptions um, that they have, right? Mm -hmm. And that they learned and the sort of history that they um, have been told and, and have disseminated. And so I think um, I think the other sort of danger, and I've written about this, and so you can cut me off. Um, no, is no, that, go ahead, yeah. Is that um, this mythology that, that real white women, right? Um, and I think this comes out of sort of the feminism of the 1970s, right? That a sort of authentic, woman um embraces um you know understands patriarchal oppression and therefore understands right and can empathize and connect with other forms of oppression and it's just not true it wasn't true historically it's not true today right that this there's this mythology of kind of a gender essentialism that, to tie back to your early comments, I think undergirds these headlines about surprise that white women voted for Trump, surprise that white women voted for Governor Brian Kemp um, in Georgia over Stacey Abrams, that this sort of element of surprise is a testament to this myth of, of kind of this belief that white women as a whole and as a homogenous unit, bring a kind of moral um, justice to the political sphere. And it's just, it wasn't true in 1920 or in 1820. It's just not historically, the evidence is overwhelming against that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, and I think it's a really important point. So would you say that uh, American uh, women's movement uh, for equality, and I'm thinking of kind of feminist movements, uh, you know, wh- which are often termed white feminism, um, are forever tainted by these roots in perpetuating white supremacy. Can, can you even imagine a united women's movement um, uh, uh, without some kind of serious reckoning with this past? Um, and is that reckoning happening?
1: um can i imagine a united women's movement no no <laughs> and, and it's not like a condemnation of feminism i just can't I, I think to flip it do we ever talk about a united men's movement <laughs> like, right like mm. um, right and and why are we surprised that women vote for a particular candidate, but we don't have that same sort of pro- surprise that white men vote for that candidate. Like, I, I think there's all sorts of um, kind of biological essentialism wrapped up, right, that ignores the long history of um, class inequity, of, right. of racial inequity, um, right? of how geography and environment have shaped experience so so I like yeah so no I cannot imagine
0: yes um, building solidarity I- without that reckoning would would be would have would, because I the reason I ask is obviously there's this movement of, of a critique of white feminism which I think is long overdue um, and and so I'm just wondering to what extent you're seeing in America a reckoning with the past, which you've detailed in your book of you know so many of the women who become public figures have built into the institutions that they've constructed and that they've been a part in shaping white supremacy. They built it into it. It's built into the very fabric from from the grassroots up. And so you know today to have A feminist movement that hasn't really grappled with the way it's emerged, Um, seems to me maybe in itself one of the ways in which whiteness protects itself from critique.
1: Yeah, I do think there are places that it's being challenged and interrogated, and I think there's also a danger of assuming a kind of ahistorical sense that that white supremacist politics can't be unrooted, right? That mm. it is sort of this, um, there's kind of a fatalism. Um, yeah. and, and I think um, that's also um, sort of problematic, but the reproductive justice movement, for example, right, has pulled in um, a, a wide range of feminists across sort of, you um, race and class, I think in ways that there is a reckoning, right, of um, there is an ongoing reckoning, right, of, of, of what reproductive justice um, has meant, right, in different constituencies. And the um, women involved um, in that endeavor, right, I think are Reckoning with um, the multiple sort of identities and politics that are wrapped up in individual women's lives.
0: Mm. Um, I know that we kind of coming to the end. I could talk to you for ages about this, but um, I've got a question about um, uh, the author and academic Kyla Schuler wrote a book called "The Biopolitics of Feeling." I don't know if you're familiar with it. Looking at sex difference and and rare science in the 19th century, but but basically arguing that women. Is an overdetermined category of whiteness, meaning she believes the categories male and female are actually racial categories, not just gendered, um, and that the the category women emerged to distinguish white women was never intended as a universal category of womanhood. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, based on the research you've done. Um, do you think that that woman is a category that's actually already racialized? Has the idea of woman always been a, elaborated as a kind of quality of whiteness? Throwing a lot at Ooh, you there.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know, my standard answer would be, I'll have to go read the, that. I'm not familiar with that book and well, think. Uh, yeah, of it I'm that
0: throwing it. a lot at you if you haven't read it, but. Uh, right. Yes, I mean, feel free to say you need to go away and read it. That, that would yeah. be perfectly fair, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But I also think that you probably have to ask um, and interrogate, right, what um, women of color have said about womanhood. Right, R- right like, they, oh, I think yeah. you would have to look at a sort of larger, but, and I don't, she probably did. And, um, yes, absolutely. That, but, yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, I think I would have to go read it. <laughs> <All right.
0: laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> fine. Um, before, uh, before I go on, we've got a quick fire round of questions before, um, I let you go. Um, I just wanted to ask you for other, um, kind of readers, academics, people just generally interested in understanding whiteness better who are researching this area, what do you as a uh, researcher who's racialized as white in this field have to look out for when you're doing your research? How do you um, kind of, pr- you know, protect yourself against the the blind spots, against, you know, the fact that we're all sort of swimming in the whiteness and, and we don't necessarily have a um, 360 view of our own selves in that conversation?
1: Well, I think that's um, actually what I find... Pretty helpful about a robust academic community is that someone, <laughs> right, in, in um, my sort of academic world, that the people that read my work and that I'm in conversation with, and that I bounce ideas off, should um, are able, hopefully, to point out my blind spots. Right, and to point and to alert me to the sort of missteps that, um, right, that my position might make me um, not see. Mm. Right, and so I think that that's um, while research and writing seems to be a um, a lonely endeavor at times, I think that. you know, the work, for example, of Stephanie Jones um, Rogers, they were her property um, about white um, slaveholding women, right? It um, was really helpful. It came out right after um, my book. But my conversations and um, with her and reading through her work and discussing um, just at one conference that we did about um, Carolyn Bryant and Emmett Till. I think those help um, sort of expose, I think, presenting your work and being willing to sort of take the hits that you get uh, Mm. are also really educational. You know, um, like in my personal life, I'm a huge, um, I hope, advocate for public education, and yet at the same time, right? I write about how public education has perpetuated sort of white supremacist narratives. And so there's times, right, that in in different audiences, people will call me, you know, on that, right? If Mm. public education has perpetuated these narratives, why, how is it that we should invest, right, in the sort of possibility of a democratic public education? And so I think those are you know, just some of the blonde spots that conversation, right, has, um, has an academic conversation has helped point out. And I think there's a tendency, right, to, um, I think when I started this research, I probably had these conversations, like, trying to find, like, to sort of reconcile, like, these, Damaging and racist actions, with what seems like you know, kind of a, a a feminist kind of orientation to the world, right? That these are working, you know, and, yeah. and I think those conversations were pretty helpful too. How, right?
0: how how do you respond to that question around public education? Because I think it's a it's an important one, right?
1: Yeah, not very well. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I yeah. hope but that's yeah. what my sort of next project will help. Um, I mean, sometimes I think that it's an expression maybe of the, of my position that I can hope that education and that public education can sort of deliver, right, in ways that are, are empowering. And, and I think I'm not, I mean, that's not only the dream, right, of myself, right? I think like historically we have examples of, you know, people from a wide range of experiences, but sometimes I worry that that, position of mine, right, that, um, you know, is more hopeful than maybe shaped by historical evidence and reality.
0: Mm, Well, I mean, it it
1: sounds like it speaks to uh,
0: an underlying aspiration towards its ability to transcend uh, the white supremacy that's been built into it. Yes. And I suppose um, uh, the question is, is that uh, one of the ways in which whiteness protects itself or is it actually uh, an achievable uh, objective uh so yes well look before we uh, move on to the quick fire round um i uh, just have a quick few series of questions um these are not intended to have very lengthy answers but they are um not simple questions either so um quick fire round goes like this what is the root of racism in your view
1: um I think racism results from, um, from policies designed to um, sequester power in the hands of the few.
0: Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is the universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable?
1: I don't, if a post-racial world means the denying of the power that race has performed as a a construct, I'm not interested in that as an outcome.
0: Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism?
1: I think it can be both useful and detrimental.
0: Great. Um, Can I get a sense of how it can be detrimental?
1: Um, I think it can be detrimental when it um, obfuscates various iterations, when it serves as explanation right mm. rather than a point of interrogation.. Mm.
0: Thank you so much. Well, uh, Professor McRae, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us all today. Um, Where can people find your work? What is the uh, bookseller of preference? um, And where can people keep up to date with uh, with what you do?
1: (laughs) I mean, the book is with Oxford University Press. It's in paperback. It's um, pretty accessible. Um, I think... um, Yeah, I don't really have a social media presence. (laughs) Um, Just um, so um, that would not be a way to sort of um, keep up. But I'm happy to, if people have questions or suggestions or want to follow up, I'm happy to answer and um, start email and phone conversations. Um, This has been um, really helpful and um, I really appreciate the time to talk to you. And so I'm happy, you know, I love talking history and I think this is an important topic and I'm anxious to learn more about it. I'm anxious to sort of get, um, understand people's responses and experiences. So um, I'm pretty available. Thank you so much. So that would be
0: through uh, your academic profile at your university for those people who do uh, want to contact Professor McRae. Um, And on that note, I'm just uh, really need to say thank you again for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.